we're having a uh, difficulty with the cordless mic, so got a security blanket today. No, that's okay. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to First Peter, chapter one, and we're going to begin this morning in verse twenty-two. This morning we're going to continue in God's Word and what we've been going through the last few weeks in First Peter. You know, something I want us to all think about this morning, and I think we all can agree with, is society's becoming less and less personal. The personal or social aspects, uh, you know, everything's being replaced by the virtual and the technological. We've become really good at communicating in technology, but one-to-one, eye-to-eye, person-to-person contact I think that's slipping away from us as a society. To be a friend today doesn't mean the same thing as it used to mean. You know, uh, most of us have social media accounts, but, you know, you can be a friend on Facebook or followers on other social media like Instagram or have friends on your gaming console. But these don't mean the same thing, though. You know, in short, it's to like someone today doesn't really mean the same thing that it used to mean. You can like someone's social media, you can like their post, but to follow someone today doesn't really mean the same thing as it used to mean. The truth is that we can have hundreds and hundreds and thousands of friends, followers, and everything in between on social media and not have very many, if any, close or real friends. All of this technology that we've come accustomed to, there's consequences to it. You know, think about it like this. Who's been to a restaurant here, I mean, even recently? You know, we go and we eat. But think about it, you know, last time you were at a restaurant, next time you're going to a restaurant, put this in the back of your mind. Somehow it's become a place where people go to eat and be alone together. You know, it's, it's kind of an oxymoron in itself, you know, alone together. Here they are together, but yet so far apart, connecting with each other, you know, staring at a vice or at a screen. They're engaging with one another, you know, they're communicating, but they're doing it virtually. You know, a recent study I found this week from the University of Pennsylvania established a clear, casual link between less social media use and improvements in loneliness and depression. Researchers also had this to say in that study regarding social media. It is ironic, but perhaps not surprising that reducing social media, which promised to help us connect with others, actually helps people feel less lonely and depressed. So by unplugging, we get plugged in. Another Harvard Business Review found that teen performance went up 50% when teens socialized more and spent less time on social media. You know, I don't know about you all. I know I'm getting up there in age. I just turned 40, and some think that's young, and others think it's... (laughs) Old as can be, but for us, social networking growing up was, you know, going outside, getting on your bike, being with your friends, you know, going out and playing. With all that in mind, though, there's something we ought to be great at as a church, and that is love. It's the personal connection, not the virtual. If there's any one place love should flourish, it ought to be in the body of Christ. God in his grace adopts us, the separated, into the family, into the body of Christ 
through conviction of the Spirit, repentance and faith not to be separated. God is, in talking, God is about taking the isolated, the solitary, the alone person, and bringing he or she into a network, a family, an eternal reality. A, a computer can't do that. A cell phone can't do that. Social media can't do that. Only God can do that. We live in a love-starved world, but to those who are in the body of Christ, sealed by the Spirit, our love should flourish. With this thought in mind, I ask that everybody stand with me as we read 1 Peter beginning, uh, chapter 1, beginning of verse 22. And Peter's thoughts, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, Love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again. He's talking to believers here. Not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible, through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man, as the flowers of the grass withers, and the flower falls away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby if if needed, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. Please be seated. He has given you a living hope because of resurrected Christ. And we find that in verse 3. That living hope continues into heaven, whereby is reserved for you. And we're going through what we've talked about the last few times in 1 Peter. That living hope continues into heaven where it is reserved for you. It is incorruptible. It does not fade away. That was verses 4 and 5 of the same chapter. So that even though you may struggle now, talking about trials, and go through trials now, and not be able to see God clearly now, that's verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. You have the, what the prophets preach, what the preachers proclaim, and what the angels ponder, verses 10 through 12. Therefore, bringing us to where we're at now, therefore, beginning in verse 13, therefore you and I ought to live holy lives and be obedient to God, because he redeemed us at an incredible price, the precious blood of his son. And now here we are, starting in verse 21. Peter tops this chapter off. And he says, sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently. When we think of love, we usually don't put that in the context of sports. I mean, you know, I coach, but what does it take to win a football game? Not love. You don't need love on a football team, right? You just need a a good group of athletes and good football players. But I came across something as I was studying. and It was just one of those, again, on social media, though. A quote by coaching legend Vince Lombardi of the uh, Green Bay Packers. He was once asked, Coach, what does it take to make a winning team? Coach Lombardi was quoted as saying this. First, you need to teach the fundamentals. A player's got to know the basics of the game. Next, you've got to keep him in line, and that's discipline. The men have to play as a team. And third, they've got to care for one another and love each other. This morning, looking at these verses, we're going to look at four basic instructions on how to have a winning team amongst us as believers. Placing God first in our lives. Here are 
four aspects to Christian love may be putting four directives for us. And number one, love without hypocrisy. Secondly, celebrate your spiritual family. Third, radiate a mutual loyalty. And fourth and possibly most important, cultivate spiritual dependency. Cultivate spiritual dependency. All four talked about in these verses. Looking back in verse 22, Peter says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love for the brethren. And let's think about this for a moment. Notice the language that's put here when it says, You have purified your souls. It speaks about something that's happened in the past, but it has continuing results. He's talking about those those baptized in the Spirit. In other words, we were saved in the past. He's talking to believers here. You were convicted by the Spirit, repented, and placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that should make a difference now. This shows not only have we been cleansed in the past, but we have new capabilities here in the present. We've been saved. We have a new capability of loving others as Christ loved us. Love your brothers and sisters. Simply put, the first reason that we should love is because we've been shown love. Why should we love? Because if we've been saved, we have the Spirit dwelling within us. In Galatians 5.22, talks about the fruits of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. See right there, right here in Galatians, fruits of the Spirit, and all beginning with love. There's so much of God's Word, especially in the New Testament, that is filled with signs or commandments to love one another. It was the Lord Jesus Himself who said during His earthly ministry, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. For by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. So there it is, love others as Jesus loved us, sacrificially. Show the fruits of your salvation by the love you have for one another. You know, a few months ago, when I believe I was preaching in Philippians, I shared the story of Corey Ten Boom. She was a woman who was in prison with the rest of her family uh, in a Nazi concentration camp called Ravensbrück during World War II. Uh, you know, they had been arrested for harboring Jews in their home. Her, her sister and her were sent to Ravensbrück, and her father was taken somewhere else, and they never saw her again. You see, her sister died in that prison camp, and Corey had been released due to a clerical error just a week before all the women were killed. Years later, she was presented with a difficult trial. She had come to -to face-to-face with one of her captors after sharing the message of the gospel. He had repented, and he found Jesus, but he repented for the horrible things that he had done and was asking her for forgiveness as well. And Corey, in that moment, had every earthly, fleshly reason not to forgive him, not to show this man love. But Corey had to be willing to, to sacrifice her justification for bitterness. 
It was one thing to have that bitterness, but she had to be willing to set it aside and lay it down and say, Lord, I'm giving it to you. I'm going to obey you instead of tending to this horrible resentment, instead of listening to myself. This was her sacrifice. This was her trial. And as she admitted what went through her mind during those seconds that flew by that seemed like an eternity in front of this man, you know, the thoughts of her sister dying there, and this man, you know, thinks he can just wipe all that away with a simple apology. She had to be willing to sacrifice those feelings. That's where sacrifice often comes into play. Lay it all down and let God work out what the Spirit has worked in. An amazing statement of faith Corey had. But that's the principle here. Our salvation should affect relation. It should affect all aspects of our lives. Our salvation, once we've been shown that love, once we've been set free, now love other people as Christ loved us. Notice in verse 22 it says, What kind of love for the brethren? Sincere. Sincere love, it's you know, the real deal. It's not fake. It's genuine. It's real. The Greek word for sincere is anupokritos. An, an, an it's hard to pronounce, but it means without hypocrisy. In other words, don't be phony in your love. When Paul wrote to the Romans, he said in chapter 12, verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy. We shouldn't pretend we should really love people. Not walk in these doors on a Sunday morning, flip some imaginary switch, displaying some sort of robotic cheap version of love for one another. Don't be phony in your love. Think of it like plastic fruit. And I was struggling with analogy for this, but something came to mind. I, when I was growing up, my grandparents had a house in central Florida. And if you ever spend any time in central Florida, it's basically a beautiful area built in the swamps. It's humid, it's muggy, the mosquitoes are unrelenting and sometimes bigger than you are. But amidst my grandparents' house, she, my grandmother had this room. It was her sitting room. It was, we called it the fancy room. You didn't necessarily want to go in that room because if something got moved a centimeter to the right, grandma was going to know. You know, there was a, a fancy piano. There was plastic coverings on the furniture where you sat on it. You either slide off or it'd stick to you. Or it, was, it was beautiful. But with all the decorations she had in that room, she had these small bowls and they were filled with this plastic fruit, just decorative. Justin being Justin when he was younger, decided to take some of the grapes into the kitchen and mix it in with the real grapes. <laughs> and I would try to trick my brother and my cousins who we were always there, and they'd fall for it almost every time. They'd be eating grape, and I'd slide another one in there, and all of a sudden they've got this waxy mess just spewing from their mouths. And, I mean, it was... It, it was funny, you know, and I hope if they're listening to this, I'm sorry, but uh, thank you for the analogy. But the word here we're talking about, sincere in our language, comes from the Latin word without wax. Sine sera literally means without wax. So let your love be without wax. This is the history of where it comes from. In ancient times, um, statue makers would use wax to fill in their mistakes. You know, they would be spending countless hours chiseling and working on their statue only to, you know, sneeze or move, and all of a sudden you've lost an ear or, you know, a nose fell off, and they would use wax to fill in those mistakes, you know, put an ear back on or recreate a left nostril, whatever they had to do. You know, they had two options, either start over or fix the imperfections. 
you know, uh, porcelain makers, when they were making plates or cups or things of that nature, they could put wax mixed with a little porcelain and hide those chips and those scratches. So when stature makers and porcelain dealers wanted to declare their product was of the best quality and it was real, they would say it was sine sera, without wax. So insincere love is when you fill your love in with cheap substitutes. If you pay somebody a compliment, you really don't mean it. You're really trying to encourage them, but realistically you're trying to manipulate them and maybe get something from them or butter them up the best way you know how. Or maybe give someone a hug, not because you're being sincere or you love them, because you want to get closer to them physically. That's insincere love. Matthew Henry put it this way. Hypocrisy is to do, de to do the devil's work in God's uniform. Who among the twelve apostles demonstrates this insincere love? I mean, this is very easy. Judas. Looking at John 12, be uh, beginning at verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, would betray him. Why was this fragment or fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? So, so far, so good. You know, it sounds like Judas is concerned about the poor, right? But if anything we teach, context is everything. Look ahead in verse 6. John says, Not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. Another reference to Judas Matthew 26, beginning in verse 47. This is the betrayal of Jesus and his arrest in Gethsemane. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now his betrayer had given them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. So there's another occasion Judas sees Jesus in the garden. He, you know, has the Roman soldiers in tow. They're all behind him. Walks up to Jesus and kisses him. That's a sign of love. That's a sign of affection. But it was insincere. That love had wax in it. He was simply trying to identify Jesus to the soldiers in the crowd. So let our love be without hypocrisy. Let us be sincere in our love, not fake. The second aspect or directive found in the verses. Celebrate your spiritual family. And there's a key word here in verse 22. Brethren. Brethren, brother, sister. It's a family word. We're in a spiritual family. And then here in verse 23. Having been born again. These are family words. You're in a spiritual family because you have had a spiritual birth. A rebirth. We call on the same Heavenly Father. We trust in the same Savior. We all have the same Holy Spirit living inside of us. Salvation comes one way. The Spirit convicts us and by trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for us on Calvary and repenting of our sins. Faith and repentance. There's an old saying, blood is thicker than water. Simply put, we can mess up, we can fall down, we can fail, but if we're related by blood, we're going to get through those trials because we're part of His family. Blood is thicker than water. And Peter has already said to those living in Christ that they have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb without blemish, without spot. Because we're part of God's family, we need to always acknowledge that. Dwight L. Moody, old evangelist, lived many years ago. 
It's quoted as saying, you can be a good doctor without loving your patients. You can be a great lawyer without loving your clients. But you cannot be a good Christian without love. We need to recognize our brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Another little analogy I want to share. There was a psychiatrist who came home after a busy day. He was tired, you know, just dog tired. Dragged himself in the front door and saw his wife standing there. He put his head in his hands and he said, Sweetheart, I have heard one problem after another all day. I don't want to hear about any more problems. So whatever you have to say to me, give me good news. Don't tell me about another problem we're having in our family. And the wife stepped back and she thought about it for a moment. And she said, well, dear, the good news is two out of three of our children didn't break an arm today. That's one way to put it. It could be that two out of three people sitting around you right now, they're okay. But be sensitive to the one who is not. Not everyone goes through the same trials. But if we're in the same family, lift one another up, encourage one another, grieve with one another, share joy with one another, point each other back to Jesus. Celebrate your spiritual family. Next, we're to radiate a, a mutual loyalty. Verse 22 again. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. Now here's what I want you to notice, and this is important. This is put an imperative tone, which is stated as a command. An imperative is a command. Peter's saying here, I command you to love. And we think, we can't do that. Imagine me going up to Ashley, you know, 15, 16 years ago when we just started dating. You know, and as Chad would say, I was lost as last year's Easter eggs. But imagine me going up to Ashley and saying, Ashley, I command you, love me. You know my wife, how well would that really have gone... But how do you command someone to love? You know, how do, how do we do that? Here's how and why. Because there's a kind of love that doesn't depend on emotion. It's an act of the will. It's something you choose to do. And sometimes you don't necessarily feel like doing it. Let me put it this way. There's two times in the same verse the word love is used. Same word, love and love. And I explained this a little bit in the catechism this morning. But there's two different words, same word, but two different meanings in the Greek language. Verse 22, since you purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit and sincere love, that word, this form of love, Philadelphia, which means brotherly love, family love. And sincere love of the brethren, here's the second time, love one another. This is a different word. This is agape love. This is divine love. This is sacrificial love since you already love each other as brothers now i'm commanding you love like god loves love with a sacrificial love love fervently and love with a pure heart you know we share the second kind of love because he commands us to show this as an act of our will even when we don't feel like it you know and the key word here is fervently fervently deeply Think of it like an athletic term. I'm sorry for all the sports references this morning, but think of it like an athletic term, meaning to stretch out a muscle to its limits, to its capacity. 
You know, some, if you go to the gym, you put weights on a dumbbell, barbells, and you put as many weights as you can handle, uh, you know, up to your capacity so that you can lift. And typically a person will do repetitions until that final rep is just, you know, like a struggle, like you just you can't get it up or just barely holding on. But it's stretching that muscle to its capacity. But that's what Peter's talking about is go all out in our love. Stretch out our love so far that it graciously, graciously forgives and blesses and heals. See, love is something we continuously have to do and act on and work on and align our will with God's. So many will say, no, warm is a feeling. Love yourself. It's not. It's, not, it's, it's, it's in that same muscle group as your faith. You have to exercise it. You have to stretch it out. So two, we have to work on our love. Work on treating people like God would treat us. Jesus as our ultimate example. That takes an act of our will powered by the Spirit. We decide to show love to people even when we have been hurt by that person. And then, you know, follow me on this. Doesn't God love that way? Isn't the best reflection of God's love to demonstrate love to somebody who fervently has hurt us? Wouldn't the most reflective thing we can imagine of God's love for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son God gave his son to a world who willingly sacrificially drank the cup filled with his wrath that was due upon us but that's how insurmountably God loves his children so we must never say well I think I love people enough just the way I am you know really so often the Bible says, I know that you love, but keep doing it. For instance, in Philippians chapter 1, beginning of verse 9, and I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So same idea, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And may the Lord cause you to increase and overflow with love for one another and for everyone just as we do for you. So think in a moment, taking time in your seats right now. How fervent is your love displayed in your relationships? How fervent is it? In your marriages, how do you stretch out that love to bless your spouse at home? What acts of will do you show your children at work, with your friends, in your small groups, in your church? Let me pose another question. What is your limit? What is your capacity to love? Does it stop when you think you hit your limit? Is it hindered when you have to address a fellow brother or sister out of love? Maybe holding one another accountable out of love in pursuit of holding to doctrinal, biblical truths. How much capacity do you have as a Christian to love people? Romans chapter 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have also obtained access through him by faith into, his, into this grace in which we stand 
and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance. Endurance produces proven character, and proven character produces hope. This hope will not disappoint us because God's love has been poured out in our hearts and through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The language here refers to filling up a bucket, a pot, so full that it just keeps overflowing, filling to the brim, just spilling out, pouring over. So when we feel like in all, all of us, when we feel like I'm done, this is enough. God, I have nothing left to give. That bucket keeps filling up. That love shed abroad in our hearts. We have an infinite capacity by God's grace alone to love people, which means no one in our lives should ever be love starved. Because when we run out, he's got more to pour in. That's direct evidence that you belong to him and that you're in the same family because you have a new capacity. The fourth and final aspect I want to talk about this morning, cultivate spiritual dependency. Cultivate spiritual dependency. Verse 24 begins with because, and Peter's giving the reason for it. And he's quoting, or he's using scripture to support scripture here. Because all the flesh is grass. He's quoting from Isaiah. Because all the flesh is grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. You see, good growth requires good food. Sometimes it requires pruning. If we're going to grow in love, we need to be nourished in our love. The Bible, God's definitive word, this is nourishment. This feeds love. This nourishes love. This book, the scripture reveals how to love, reveals a God who loves us. For God so loved the world. Our Bible, it has God for its author, salvations for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Among so many other things, it tells us not only to love, but how to love in our marriages, in our friendships, with children, and respecting our parents. So here's Peter's point. God's word was preached to us, and it gave us life because he says it's an incorruptible seed. It's an eternal seed. It's an imperishable seed. Spend your time in God's word. So the seed was planted in the heart by the Spirit. It germinated and brought forth what? Fruit. Fruit through our faith and repentance, our rebirth, our justification, and our continuing sanctification towards our glorification. Fruit proves the seed is there. Without the fruit, there's no seed. So we would presume there's no seed because there's no fruit. If there's fruit in your life, it's because a seed has been planted in your heart. And the fruit of the Spirit, again from Galatians, begins with love. In those moments you don't feel like loving that ugly person in your life, do it anyway. If you don't feel like forgiving that nasty person, do it anyway. If you don't feel like caring for that belligerent co-worker, do it anyway. If you don't feel like humbling yourself before that prideful person, do it anyway. 
It says that we're supposed to do it from a pure heart, right? Not just mechanically, not just obediently, but from a pure heart. You know, think of it like a train going down the railroad tracks. Our decisions is the engine and our feelings are the caboose. When we make the decision to show love, the feelings will follow. The feelings follow the act of love. Love one another. That's a command. Fervently, from a pure heart, those feelings will follow. See, like we talked about at the beginning, society is becoming less and less personal and more and more virtual and technological. Society would have us believe to live for ourselves, do what we want, live our best lives now. Limited, if any, accountability. This means we have to be more intentional about our love. We have to be more intentional about standing firm on biblical truths. We need to lift one another up out of love. Hold one another accountable out of love. Christian love is the love that forgiveness, you know, it, it heals and proves that we love him. That we stand firm on his truth, sealed by the spirit justified by his righteousness as ours is but filthy rags when you know the apostle john and this is according to church tradition when the apostle john got older he had to be carried and helped from congregation to congregation he didn't have the physical strength to stand on his own anymore in his last days you know tradition says that when he would stand before a congregation he would give a five word sermon and those five words were, little children, love one another. That's all he said. Little children, love one another. And this is the Apostle John. You know, maybe people were expecting a sermon. You know, that's kind of elementary kid stuff, right? Something we should all just kind of know and do. And John replied, and then according in this again to tradition, the Lord, His command is that we love one another. It doesn't get any deeper than that. Little children love one another. John 13, 34. Jesus told His disciples, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are My disciples. If you have love, for one another. And as I invite the band to the stage to close this morning service and worship, you know, Jesus' command to love one another is probably one of the most basic and often the most difficult for us to follow. You know, stretched out to your limit, is that bucket getting full? It'll keep pouring. Love is the mark that we are disciples of Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's difficult to love one another. Sometimes it's difficult to hold each other accountable. We don't agree, always agree with one another. Many of us have been hurt, maybe abandoned or even abused by the people we trusted the most. And often it's the people closest to us that have inflicted the greatest pain on us. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we are commanded to love one another even as Jesus Christ loved us. So how dare we be anything less than sacrificial with our love, courageous with our love. Five words. Little children love one another. Bow your heads and let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this time to come together, brothers and sisters in Christ. These words in 1 Peter, he's talking directly to the believers, those that have placed their faith and trust in you, repented of their sins, Lord. Lord, I pray that more of us would stand firm on your word, spend more time in your word, more time in prayer. Lord, Revelation tells us there's no cowards in heaven. And Lord, I pray that we would be courageous in standing for you and your truth and working out what has been worked in in us. Lord, we glorify your name. Lord, we love you. And Lord, it is, it is our prayer that if there is anyone here that doesn't know that love, we pray that your spirit would convict their hearts and they would turn to your son, Jesus Christ, and his righteousness. And in his name we pray, amen. Stand and worship.